0: And today, folks, we are rewinding back. Well, it's just about a year here, February 20, a little over a year. February 26, 2019, this was originally episode 2389. It was entitled Becoming a Modern Renaissance Man. And it was about basically developing the skill of being a polymath. And in the Insurrection series, this is kind of right at the top of the list of being a true individual insurrectionist. The more you can do for yourself, the more freedom you have. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And it goes back to my analogy about being born into slavery. and Born into captivity. Call it either one. Doesn't matter. And it's really more captivity than slavery. You are born into captivity. And I'm not talking about any geopolitical anything. It's not about you know the story of your enslavement or something like that from the anarcho-world. No, I'm talking about your parents. You're born into the captivity of your parents because you have to be, because you are helpless. You're completely helpless. If you don't, if you don't believe that babies are born into captivity, then you're kind of like in denial of reality. And what I have to kind of point out with that, is, to, to just drive that point home, is if you were born... In, if, if you're born and you just got born you're a baby and your parents said, I know freedom is the best thing in the world so we'll set the baby free and they took you out and put you into a field and set you free. you, you know they should be honestly like thrown into a dungeon and killed uh, but, but you would die like unless like some kind of jungle book shit happens right like a baby in the middle of a field dies because the baby's helpless. so a baby is born into captivity. And as you grow, the way you separate from the captivity of your parents is you become capable of doing things for yourself. And the more you can do for yourself, the less captive to your parents is, you, you become. And that is very clearly connected to how being connected to society's systems works as well. You will make deals with the government, with the state, with the corporatocracy Based on how much you can do for yourself, not just can you put, can you take the food and stick a fork in it and stick it in your mouth without poking yourself in the eye and not need a cork on the end of your fork, right? Like that's not because when you're a baby, like that's an accomplishment. But as you grow into an adult, the more you can do for yourself, the less dependent you are. If you can earn your own income independent of a job, then you have a lot less of a need to make a deal with the corporatocracy. And basically do things that you would prefer not to do. You have a lot more freedom. You are a lot less captive. So that's all I'm going to say about the the, the you know the content today. We'll let the rewind speak for itself. And let's talk about our step today, our thirteenth steps or thirteenth stomps, as we're up to number eight. I just did a show on this right before I left. Maybe you already did it. If you didn't, do it at least for a week. It's a real simple one. Turn off the effing news. Turn off the news. Now that you're kind of in the middle of this, you're seven steps into this process. You're beginning to figure out what you have that you don't want and what you want that you don't have. You've ta- started to figure out where you really want to build your life at geographically. You've done your first series of how can I questions, and you should have been reading those questions every day since step three or uh, step four when you did them. You should have had a financial plan developed. And this is not like some very complex plan. It's a basic budget and a basic understanding of the money that you have and the money that you don't have and the money that you need and what you need to do to make that all justify. You should have made a list of everything you already have and you're grateful for, everything you love about your life, everything you love about your job, everything that's good. And you should be going through that on a daily basis. And yesterday we started out with doing a deep analysis of the things that concern you the things you influence, and the, the things that you control. That means that you are right at a precipice now where you are ready to do something. I didn't say everything. I didn't say everything that you should do right now. But I bet most of you, if you actually did this up to this point, you're ready to do something. You're ready to take some meaningful action in your life that you've been procrastinating on. And the number one thing that can derail that is tuning in to channel whatever and listening to a bunch of empty suits tell you bullshit that you do not need to hear. So I'm going to be brief with the new content today, turn off the effing news, and with that, let's go ahead and rewind back. just a little over a year, February 26, 2019, originally episode 2389, Becoming a Modern Renaissance Man. Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the twenty-sixth, twenty nineteen. And this is episode two thousand three hundred and eighty-nine of the Survival Survival Podcast. And we're titling today's episode. Becoming a modern renaissance man, also known as a polymath. What is a polymath? It's a person that knows a lot about a lot of things. That's that's the simplest explanation that we'll give as we talk about it today. We'll get into it more. But the reason I decided to do this is, well, the ducks told me to. I'm serious. I, I went out this morning, and the ducks needed to go into my western pasture. And as long as they've been here now... Uh, right at about six months, they've never really been in the west pasture. And when ducks have to go to a place that they don't, they've never been before. They they're they're like Garth uh, and Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World. They fear change, so I had to shove them out the gate. And then because I've taught them to to, to to follow me, yeah, this is going somewhere. I promise. I took a walk through the pasture with them, and they were really scared at first. And then they followed me around, and they realized, hey. There's a lot of really good green grass over here and other stuff. Man, we should have been over here. So then we had a conversation, and I said, hey, ducks, what do you think I should talk about today? And they said, you know a lot about a lot of stuff. Maybe you should talk about that. So I left the ducks out in the field and came in and put this together for you. And the real reason we're talking about this, I did come up with it while hanging out with the ducks. I come up with some of my best stuff while hanging out with the ducks because, well, they make more sense than a lot of people to me, um, especially the ones on the television. But we've talked about this a couple times in feedback episodes and listener call shows. And we've, we've danced around the topic for maybe five to seven minutes. So I thought this is something we really need to talk about because a big part of what I do with TSP is I try, this is exactly what I'm trying to do, is make as many people in the world into modern Renaissance men. And it could be modern Renaissance woman, ladies, okay, I don't think I really need to worry about that here because most of you guys have brains or you wouldn't be here. But I mean a modern renaissance person, right? And the way I mean that is if you just think about the incredible array of topics that we talk about, or think about it this way, think about our expert council. You know, we just added three new people to the expert council. Think about the fact that if you want to know how to do something in life, it's it's almost inevitable that we have somebody on our expert council or myself that can help you with it. Like it's like you just pick something you want to know how to do if it's actually relevant to getting things done in the world, and we have somebody here to help you with that. Well, doesn't that just, isn't that just a reflection of what the show's really about? You know, people find out about the show for the first time. It's a survival podcast. It's about building bunkers and living in the ground and whatever. And they like like, like we talk a lot about preparedness. We really do, but we really talk about preparedness to live. To live a life that's good, whether times get tougher even if they don't. In other words, to be resilient. And the only way you can be resilient in the world is to have a lot of knowledge. That doesn't mean you don't have to know about everything. But you have to know a, a, quite a bit about a lot of things and then be really good at a few things and then be able to know when you need to tag out and when you need to get help. And then you need to know how to get help and how to know you're not being bullshitted by the help that you're bringing in. That is a modern renaissance man. That is a polymath. That's what we're going to talk about. today. With that, let's go ahead and dig into today's show. So let's start off again. What exactly is a polymath or a renaissance man? And I differ from the conventional way that I think, you know, modern media defines this. They they like to fawn over billionaires who do a lot of stuff and give away a lot of money. If you look up modern polymath, you'll find people like that. Uh, almost like they're looking for the uh, the Iron Man billionaire character, but they can't, so they mention somebody like a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs. And when I first looked into that, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know the media kind of was in this game of doing that, but you know, like most things the media gets involved in, they usually get it wrong. One of the other ways that people define uh, a modern Renaissance man is by looking back to somebody that I would say was one of the archetypes. For, for that, and that is Benjamin Franklin. And Ben Franklin, of course, through poor Richard's almanac, put out a lot of sayings that we still use in our vernacular today, and one of them was a jack of all trades and a master of none. In other words, I can do a little bit in all things, but I haven't taken the time to become a complete master of any. And I would say that Franklin was a master of some things, He was a jack-of-all-trades, but he wasn't a master of none. I think it just flowed well. And I think it spoke to his audience. I think he was a master of knowing how to speak well. He was a master statesman. And he, of course, did poor riches before. He was truly a statesman, but he had already mastered the skill that would take him there. And a master of none spoke to his audience, who did not see themselves as having mastery, though these men and women had mastery. If you think of the time pre- and post-American revolution, if you had somebody who was making a living as a farmer or an engraver or a brewer, they truly were a master of that craft. They just didn't see themselves as that because it was still a real error of the concept of aristocracy in the colonies. So he was speaking kind of down to the level of acceptance of his audience, in my view. I think the right Franklinism would be a jack-of-all-trades, and a master of some. Though I do think there's truth in the original, because we'll get to it today where I'll talk about how I think one of the downsides of being a polymath is you will never be as much of a master at any one thing as you could have been. You will never reach your full potential because you'll dedicate yourself to other things. But I think a true renaissance man is a jack-of-all-trades, and I would almost say it's a jack of many trades and a master of some. Because the other thing is, no one is a jack of all trades. He was trying to simplify it. He was trying to make it where people just go, oh yeah, okay. But if you really critically analyze that, well, there's always something that you can't do, don't know about. There's always something new to learn. That's part of what makes this fun. And there's always some things that you're like, I just don't give a shit about that. And that's important if you want to be a modern renaissance man, that you understand there are some things you can just say, hey, you know what, that's not my thing. Or else we're not going to be able to do this. And so the quote I actually like by Franklin, more than that one, to really feed into this discussion, is, tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me, and I learn. Because involvement is key. And involvement only really happens when the person that's being involved wants to be involved. You might go along and get along, but if you're truly involved, as an integrated, as it bought into something, then it's voluntary or it's fake. And that leads me to, I want to talk about how modern education killed the Renaissance, man. And you might think it's this obsession that we have with specialization. And that's a thing. That is a thing. There's the famous quote about, you know, a a man should be able to change a diaper and, you know, con a ship and all these other things. And, um, specialization is for insects. And there is, there is something to that. But I, I think it's far, far worse. And I don't think it was intentional. I think a lot of things the system does was intentional. I really don't think the system did this on purpose. I think it was by happenstance. And that is we, ruined natural learning. We destroyed natural learning. So in the minds of many people, learning isn't fun. Learning is not enjoyable. When I say learning, if the first thing you think is school, if I say education, and the first thing you think is school, if I say school, and the first thing you think is test, then you're a victim of this. Okay? And what I mean by that is, Let's look at there's there's two real me, there's two real concepts of natural learning in the world in my view. There is learning due to necessity and learning due to desire. So necessity is I'm really hungry and I see this little critter crawling around animal over there, and it's kind of it's big enough. Maybe it's like a squirrel or a rabbit or something. And I look at that little critter and say, you know what? If I could club that thing on the head then I could eat it, and I would be less hungry, and I'm really hungry. So I need to know how to club that thing on the head, and when I try to club it on the head, it turns out that little critter is pretty fast. So now I have to figure out how to either build some sort of weaponry that overcomes that animal's speed and and capabilities, because I physically am not as fast as a rabbit or a squirrel. I can't climb a tree like a squirrel. Or I have to develop some sort of a trap and engineer my way to a solution to fill my belly. That's learning due to necessity. And in general, humans, when they learn due to necessity, they are very bought into the concept, because they need to be. Then there's the other way that we naturally learn. Learning due to desire. I simply wish to know. So now I've got a full belly, and I'm walking through the woods in a place I've never been before, and I've seen squirrels, but now I see this squirrel... And it doesn't look like what I know to be a squirrel. It has a pattern that, that in the way that it moves and the, the way that it climbs a tree and the way that it kinda shakes its tail, but it looks different. Maybe this squirrel is black and I've never seen a black squirrel or it flies through the trees like a bird. And my natural human inquisitiveness says I, I wish to know more about this creature. It's not that I need to, I find it interesting. And someone standing right next to you go, yeah. It's a squirrel of flies. Yeah, i seen that on a cartoon. I don't care. So that person doesn't have the desire. But they look down on the ground and they see a mushroom and say, hmm, I wonder what kind of mushroom that is. I've never, and they are interested in that mushroom. And somebody else thinks you're both nuts, has no interest in being in the woods, goes into town and walks into a library and wants to know the history of language. And the two of you that are interested in mushrooms in the squirrel don't care about the history of language for now. Maybe at some point you will be interested. This is natural learning. This is completely the opposite of how we teach in an institution, in a school. And because of that, people have stopped being excited about education. They've stopped being excited about learning. Learning is only a means to an end. Our children are not going to, to college you know. at 70% or more of graduates go to college now because they're excited about what they're going to learn in college. They're going to college because it's expected of them. Education has become a piece of a system that is actually pretty miserable when you think about it in totality. What is the plan for the average person? What are they taught to do in the world? Well, you grow up, you go get an education so that you can get a job, so that you can work for the majority of your life and hopefully save enough money and have a plan during that, that when you stop working because you can't anymore, you can live relatively comfortable until you die. If education is so that that plan can happen, how exciting is it? How fun is it? It's not even really necessary. Because the truth is, whatever we need to learn, we learn it once we need to learn it. That's how the human mind works. So we have ruined the concept of being excited to learn something. When I was a kid, school was boring, but there were subjects I wanted to know about. Those were interesting. But some of those had teachers that basically taught the book. Those were boring. If I wanted to learn the book, I could read the book. But when I wanted to convince my, my, my parents to let me play with snakes, to let me go be part of an internship program at a zoo, and play with snakes and work with my dad's friend who worked with venomous snakes. Then, well, I wanted, and in my mind as a child, I needed that education. And every second I could get in a library, I was, because there was no internet or anything, I was learning about snakes. To so the fact where I knew more about snakes than a lot of people with degrees in biology and specializations in herpetology as a kid, because I wanted to. I didn't need to. In my heart, I needed it, but in my mind, I wanted it. You have to make that mindset change if you want to become a polymath. The entire educational process that you were part of through your schooling, all the way up through college, university, master's degrees, PhDs, etc., was completely predicated on the concept of this curriculum is set for you so that you can tick certain boxes so that you qualify to do certain things in life rather than you want to learn this because it's interesting and here's a path to learn this thing that you find interesting. And if you make that mindset change, then you can become very gifted as a self-directed student. And the natu- you will become a renaissance man. Because what will happen is you will get so good at learning so fast about the things that interest you that you'll actually kind of fill up on it and go, gee, that was good steak. And somebody goes, do you want more steak? No, ah, I'm kind of full on steak right now. Would you like a piece of pie? What kind of pie. It gets like that. Because not everything that you are going to learn about you want to actually achieve a mastery of. You don't necessarily want to become an expert in that. The odd thing is, a lot of people that then want to know about that thing will soon look at you and think, this person's kind of an expert in this." this. I mean, so that leads us to, well, what is an expert? Instead of a master, what is an expert? Because we have completely perverted learning and education in our systems as ticking boxes, we have determined that an expert is somebody that has gone to school and studied under a certain protocol and then has passed a series of exams and maybe written a paper or two on that thing, and then that person can talk about it at a level where other people really don't understand what the hell they're saying. That's really what we look at as an expert. For, for me to understand a true expert, they're going to have to dumb it down for me. Because I don't have their education. I didn't go to school for eight years of college for all this advanced degree to learn everything they know. So if they want to explain it to me, they have to bring it down to my level of being a dumbass. That's not an expert. That's not an expert. An expert is someone that knows, has, has a good command of a subject, and can truly make it understandable without trying hard. They don't have to dumb it down. They just explain it, and you understand it. That's what a true expert is to me. Now, there are people who are incredibly intelligent, that know more about that subject than you ever will, and our hypothetical expert in the middle ever cares to. But the thing is, you don't need to know, and you don't care. And you're never going to care. And if they tried forever to make you care, you're not going to care because you don't give a flying flip about it. But the expert can captivate you with a subject you didn't think you were interested in because they explain it to you in a way that makes sense, that you understand, and you don't feel like it's being dumbed down. You don't feel like you're being talked down to. And this kind of leads us to... The concept of becoming an expert in something. See, I think a a polymath may indeed be a jack of many trades and only a master of some. But I also believe that he is an expert or she is an expert in many by that definition. So let's look at how you become an expert and compare my method of expert, uh, becoming an expert, with somebody like Tim Ferriss, who I have a lot of respect for, and I am not putting him down to what I'm about to say. But this is like Spirico versus Ferriss here. So the Tim Ferriss approach in 4-Hour Workweek is, well, what you are going to do? You're going to be an expert in this thing, so you find out what are the trade organizations in this thing, and you join two or three of them, okay? And then you're going to read three top-selling books on this subject, then you're going to put together and give one free, one- to three-hour seminar at the closest well-known university that will let you get away with doing it. Then you give two free seminars at branches of well-known companies. So you might like say IBM, you might be able to find this little bitty IBM shop over here with like three people in it. But you can say you then presented to IBM, Okay. And then you're going to offer to write one or two articles for some trade magazines and get your couple articles published. And then you're going to join an organization called Profnet, P-R-O-F-N-E-T. And that's a service that general uh, journalists use to find experts to quote for articles. And I would add to that, if you're going to take his approach, then you also want to join an organization called HARO, uh, Help a Reporter Out, H-A-R-O, HARO. And it's, you will get an email every day saying, there are journalists looking for these types of things, and you could submit and say, hey, I can do that for you. So ProfNet is more like you're in a database. HARO is more like they send the questions to you, and you make a pitch to whoever you think fits out of that day's email. And I don't have a problem with that. But let's talk about what kind of expert Tim is teaching you to become. He's teaching you to become an, an expert under the definition that we have in academia. Because it sells. That's how you sell yourself and you market your book and sell a million copies. I Again, I have no problem with this, but 90% of what's in there is so that you can put down a member of blah, 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 presented to blah, 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 lectured at blah, 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 published by blah, blah, blah. And it works. The only thing in there that really makes you more of an expert, though, is reading the three books and giving the seminars. I don't care where you give the seminars. Instead of giving the seminar to IBM or Exxon or whatever, you could give the seminar to a bunch of chimpanzees. And you'll probably get just as much out of it because we learn best by teaching. You know, there's the old saying that those, those that can do and those that can't teach, there is some truth in it. But when it actually is something we're passionate about, that we care about, that we actually practice and do, that we actually develop a skill set around or a comprehension or an understanding thereof to the point where it actually affects our lives to the positive, when we turn around and teach it, we do become more proficient. In the Army, and this is back to the Franklin quote, quote, right? Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me and I learn. And the Army, the Army is as blunt as the Army is, as an instrument, it understands this. You're going to do something like, let me really simple, practical, and a skill set for the prepper world. Learn to tie a Swiss seat. What the hell is a Swiss seat? A Swiss seat is basically turning a rope into a harness so you can rappel off a building or a cliff. Okay? So you know how you learn to tie a Swiss seat in the army? They show you how to do it. They have you do it. And then they say, show me how to do it. Teach me how to do it. And the person sits there who taught you as though they have no idea. They've never done it before in their life. And they follow you as you teach them. And you do those three steps, you're told, you're taught, and you teach, a.k.a. involved, and you can tie off to a seat for the rest of your freaking life. Pretty cool, huh? This is how you become an expert in the Spearco world. I'm all about reading the books. And then reading everything you can that you can find online, with the caveat that a lot of people that write shit online are full of shit, and a healthy dose of let's keep my confirmation and perception bias out of this little exercise. And then taking and fi- figuring out how to do something with it, whether it's teaching or if what you wanted to learn was some sort of a primitive skill, you read about it, you watch videos on it, and then you go out and practice it. And then if you really want to get good at it, you show somebody else how to do it. And then you're an expert. Then you're an expert. Because to me, the very definition of an expert is you have the ability to self-replicate. Because I think we've made expert way too of a special word. right? You can be an expert at how to make chicken soup. It's not hard to teach you how to do it in a day. Teach you three or four different versions of chicken soup. Probably, a, unless a person just done like chicken, that even your picky friend, one version of that soup, your friend will eat. So, then you're an expert at making chicken soup. Specifically, if you can turn around and get somebody else to be able to do it equally well. In a way that's easy for them to understand. As long as the student is willing, the teacher is capable in that situation. That's becoming an expert. And if you do that, that's when you really see what I mean by what I say that Franklin got it wrong with a jack of all trades and a master of none. To me, it's really more of a jack of many trades, a master of some, and a well-versed expert on most doesn't rhyme, doesn't fit in Poor Richard's Almanac, but that's really how I see it. And I think the first step in actually doing this is determining the subjects and skills that you need to, that you want to master instead of need to master. I think that one of the problems that we have in our world today with people that, that want to kind of step up their game in life is that they keep trying to mimic that failed educational system, that failed educational paradigm that we all know all too well. And so what they say to themselves, if I am going to be able to call myself this thing, whether it's a renaissance man or a primitive skills expert or a chef or a gourmet cook or a boat builder or a mechanic, then these are these things that I need to be able to tick the boxes off of. Well... When we do that again, we get into a laborious situation. And you guys tell me, any of you that have any type of professional certification degree, even just a high school diploma, were there not pieces of that that you had no interest in, have never used since you've you've accomplished it, where you sat through a lecture and you just thought, I just have to get through this. I just have to get through this. And I just have to retain enough of it to write it down one time, and then I can forget about it forever, and I'll have my diploma, certification, degree, etc. And And the answer that many of you just did is you rolled your eyes was far too many times. Oh, God, I can't believe he's bringing that up. Yeah, that sucked. Okay, if you're going to be successful at becoming very well-versed on many things, then you're going to have to say, these are the things that I want to know how to do these are the things that interest me and then these are the things that I legitimately need to know to be happy or to have more of what I want not so that somebody else will look at you and say well you have done well you have ticked five boxes I will pat you on the head and give you a raise you didn't need that it was just a path to something expedient if it's needed you're like well I want to get into this place Right, So what exactly do I need? Do I really need this thing over here that somebody put together and put a $50,000 price tag on, or is there another path? Because in my experience, and my experience involves having had three jobs in my career before I went completely off on my own that required degrees. I do not have a degree. I have some college credits from some CLEP tests I took in high school that I never even brought up because it wasn't necessary. No, because I found out, well, what do I need to be able to do to be able to sell for a company this size? Well, you need a proven track record in sales. Okay, so what company stupid enough to give me an opportunity to prove that I can do that and learn my job while I get paid? Because that sounds a hell of a lot more interesting to me than going to school for four years. To so get a degree that's not even going to apply to my job. Now, does everything that a person wants to do have a path like that? And the answer is No you'd be surprised how many do. And what we're talking about here isn't necessarily getting a career position. In fact, that's the opposite of what we're talking about. We're talking about developing a life where you can look at the world differently than most people do and see op- opportunities where other people see problems, where you can recognize bullshit, like your bullshit detector becomes fine-tuned. And when somebody's like, well, you can't do that because you like bullshit, like, before the guy even explains why you can't do it, you're like, since I already know how it can be done, I know that whatever's going to come out of your mouth is bullshit, even if you believe it. So we have, to, we have to determine what you want and why you want it, whether it's a desire or a necessity. And then we need to separate the concepts of knowledge, hard skills, and confidence. So knowledge is pretty obvious. It's an awareness of things. And I don't have to have skills or even competence to have awareness and knowledge. So that might, for instance, be that if I want something done on the Internet for a website, I know this is possible. I've seen it done before. I know that it can be done. I know that since it's done before, it doesn't have to be done from scratch, I need someone to do it for me because frankly I don't have the time or the desire to learn how to do it. I just need this website to do this thing. That's a raw knowledge. I have raw knowledge. Hey, I need you to do this. Well, see, it's going to take five days. You're fired before you're hired. I'm going to find somebody else because I know it shouldn't take that long and I'm not giving you 15 grand to do it. That's knowledge. Knowledge is also the ability to understand and then Use rhetoric to explain a system. Rhetoric is a word that we have destroyed. It's part of the original trivium. And now when we hear rhetoric, we're thinking empty rhetoric, some talking suit on TV with a bunch of bullshit flying out of his mouth. Rhetoric is not a bad word. Rhetoric is the ability to use logic and reason and grammar to explain something so that it can be understood. So knowledge, if you truly have knowledge of something, you should be able to use rhetoric to convey it to somebody else, even if you've not done it. So you can have knowledge of how to play a guitar. You can have knowledge of these are the positions your fingers go in. Okay? This is a strumming pattern. And you can know, you know, an A minor, a D, a C, a G. Doesn't mean you can do it, but you actually could use rhetoric to explain it to somebody. And if they have general competence, you might actually be able to teach them to do something you don't know how to do. Teachers do it all the time, seriously, right um, and then hard skills would actually be able to have the ability to do it so the hard skill of playing a guitar it's a lot more than those fingers go there. there's a certain way that pressure is applied to the fret of the guitar, and somebody looks like they just touch it and they strum it, and the guitar makes it sound like and then you do the same thing and you go. Why? Because they have the hard skill and you don't. I can explain to you how to make a bow drill fire. I can even have competence of the full knowledge that, hey, you know why you're not getting a a spark with that uh, bow drill? Mm, Because your baseboard is too thick, so it's acting as a heat sink. But unless I've developed the hard skill of actually learning the touch to be able to do it, then I don't have all three. And what we're going to realize as we go into this world is that we are not going to have all three in everything that we have awareness of because we don't require it in everything. We just want an awareness first and a general competence of an understanding of the situation and then we develop the skills as they fit our lives. Because as Henry Ford said when he was asked about you know, his, having a, a college degree, he said, why would I want a degree? I have t- tremendous numbers of people that work for me that have them. If I need something that degree can do, I'll call one of them in my office and they'll take care of it for me. And there is some level of that. And the reason isn't because it's not worthy of pursuit, but because if you're going to be a polymath, you don't have time to actually generate the hard skills in everything that you know about. You're also only going to go as far in any subject as interests you or you have need, and and that's one of the limits. So let's talk about the disadvantages of being a polymath because we're going to talk about the advantages here in a second. But we should be honest. Like every, see, it's I'm going to go into my my aquarium fish nerd world for a second here. A lot of times I'll be talking to people that want to set up an aquarium. If they come over to my house, they really want to set up an aquarium. They've seen kind of what I've done in the last year and a half with some of the aquascapes, and it's beautiful, and these fish. And they'll say, well, I want this fish. Okay, great. You want this fish. Okay, the thing about this fish is this fish has certain needs and certain behaviors. And because of that, this fish can't go with certain other fish. Even fish they sell side-by-side in a fish store they can live in the same size tank, in the same temperature water, under the same water parameters. Well, why not? Okay, because one of the fish you wanted was a tiger barb. It's a little striped fish, very cool-looking fish, you know, from Indonesia, Sumatra, those areas, and it's a great fish. And it's schooly, it looks really cool, and it's really hardy, and it's hard to kill. The other fish you wanted was an angelfish. Well, the tiger barbs will attack the angelfish. Well, how? The angelfish is so big. The tiger barb is so relatively small. Because The tiger barb is a twisted little creature that's, like, paranoid. It always thinks something's out to get it, because where it lives, something's out to get it. So it lives in schools. So unless we have a great, huge school of tiger barbs, it kind of lives in a paranoid world, and we can only fit so many tiger barbs in the tank you have. Now, that angelfish has these long, flowing fins, and that tiger barb's like, ooh, I need to attack that thing. So even though it's much smaller than the angelfish, the angelfish isn't big enough to beat it up, so it and its buddies just keep going over and pecking at the fins and destroy the beautiful fins on the angelfish. So since you want this thing, it's okay, but there's certain other things that can't go along with it. And that's how being a polymath is. Everything that you do takes away the time and energy And resource you have, that you could be doing something else. So for the first example is, and I kind of mentioned this already, you will be an expert in a few things. But you will never, or maybe even a lot of things, but you will never be as good as you could have been in any one of them. You will never be, and that's why he said a master of none. That's where Franklin was a little bit right. A true master. True master is just better than most. Or reached a level of proficiency that's impressive. There it goes, wow. The true master has reached their full potential in that pursuit. And the true mastery requires dedication to that one thing. I find that very honorable. I find, I, when I, you know, I watch TV shows, something simple like Bizarre Foods. And uh, the the newer one, Delicious Destination, where he goes to all these countries, instead of eating bugs, they show like this high-level cuisine. And you see this guy, and he makes pastries in a little shop in Marseille, France. And he's 70 years old, and he started working in the bakery when he was 14 with his father. And he's never done anything but make pastries in this place. And his son, who's almost old enough to go on Social Security, is still waiting to take over because he won't leave, he won't go home. He won't retire, he won't quit. Now I'm not saying that that gentleman hasn't done other things in his life. But his professional pursuit has been this thing. And no matter how good of a cook I become, even if I liked making pastries, which I don't, I will never be as good as him. And I will never reach my full potential in that pursuit, because I'm going to spend time doing other things. And that is a limitation. I find it to be you know, one that I, I don't even want the other side of it. But you might. You will also get bored with things more quickly and move along to something else all the time, and the speed at which you become bored with a subject. And that doesn't mean you're done with it. It means you're done with it for now. If it comes up and you need it again, it'll be there. It's now an arrow that goes in the quiver. It's not knocked in the bow anymore. So what will happen is you pursue this. Your ability to learn will accelerate. I have one of my friends that says, you take something and you savant it. And I'm like, what? He's like, "You you don't know shit. Like, I'm explaining it to you, and three months later, you're telling me shit about it I never even knew was possible and you can you can do all this shit and you know all this shit, and then you're done with it, and you're on to something else exactly, and your speed at which you'll be able to take a subject and actually present it as though you are an expert to someone who's who's not fully informed in it will speed up, and that's good because you can learn more and more and more, but you are going to get to the point where people are like, "Well, you were really into that like yesterday." Yeah, but I learned about it now, so I'm going to learn about something else. And it's not being a genius. It's not being a genius. Hi, having a high IQ, or which is really a measure of your ability to learn, it's helpful here. And I think if your IQ is like 40, it's not going to work for you. But I think any reasonably intelligent person can do this. But you will begin to learn faster, learn quicker, and get bored and be done with things. So, one of the things you have to do is if you're learning about something and it's kind of a hobby where you can buy a lot of stuff, if you have money, you got to not let yourself spend it. if you're broke, it's easy because you don't have it anyway, and you'll do it thrifty. but you can end up buying a whole bunch of shit for something and then like, gee, I hope I can sell this on Craigslist All right um, Many things that entertain amaze and surprise others will become pointless to you like I can't believe you're like yawn. And you guys see it with me all the time, especially if you guys follow me on social media. But this person, so what? Did it affect the temperature of the water in your pool? Part of that's being a renaissance man. Of course this happened. Of course this idiot said something stupid. They're an idiot. Can you believe this idiot said something this stupid? Uh, what did you expect from an idiot? And I'm oversimplifying it, but that's how you start to feel about the whole damn world. You will become largely apathetic to so many things that other people find important, that other people find amazing, that other people find unbelievable, and you will start to look at people like, I don't understand how this surprises you in the least, and I do not understand why you care. And many of you are going, I already feel this way. That is the TSP effect. It's what we've been doing in your mind for 10 years. You will most likely, not definitely, but if you really take this path, you're most likely either going to need to be an entrepreneur or you're going to have to be very fluid in your career. So one of the things that people always find ridiculous about me is the number of things I've done in the past as a job. And it's, it's, I'm not going to go through the list, but it's crazy over like a 15-year period. Like how the hell does somebody that never even went to school do all this shit? Because I got bored and I went on to the next thing. And you have to be able to convince someone to give you yet another job if you're going to not be an entrepreneur when you just work for this other company for only two years. And now you want to do something you've never professionally done before. And they believe you can do it, but they're thinking, well, shit, you're going to be here for two or three years and you're going to leave. And you have to be honest sometimes and say, yeah, but I'm going to make you a lot of money in that two to three years. I'm going to change your company for the better in that two to three years. I'm gonna leave you with things you'll never have without me. Think of me like a consultant. And and I'd said that in one interview, and the guy's like jaw almost hit the floor. He also hired me. Can you can you be that flexible? Can you ride that much at the seat of your pants? Because if you can't, then your only other op- option is to be an entrepreneur and do your own thing, and then you can do whatever you want as long as you make enough money to pay your bills. Or you have to be the kind of, and I say, in the notes I say, this is not an absolute. There are people that can have a job that is kind of beneath their ability. But it pays the bills, and it's easy, and they go to work, and they do their job, and they come home. They're there for eight hours, but they probably work three or four. They can kind of fart around and do other things and get away with it. Maybe a lot of their learning is actually thought experimentation and they're there and they hold the desk down or whatever it is and they can be happy that way. If that's you, okay. But I'm going to tell you, of people that truly take this path in life, that's probably 1% of them. And of the people in the world that take this path, that's probably 1% to 2% of people in the world that can truly say, this is what I am. I really am a modern renaissance man. Not only do I know all this shit, if you give me something and I find it interesting and you come back to me in two weeks, you might have been doing this for ten years, I will tell you things you didn't know that you will find useful. There's only about 2% of the people in the world, not that can do this, that choose to, that break free and go ahead and do it. So if you're going to be the person that's going to do it and work a straight career for 20 or 30 years till you retire, (laughs) huh, You are 1% of 2% of the people in the world. And I'll tell you the one place that I think this can be pulled off more than any other, and it's going to sound stupid when I first tell you it, but it's the military. It's the military. Because the military is, unless you really screw up and as long as you get promoted, it's kind of a guaranteed job until you retire. And it's very varied. You know, there's a lot of different things that you might do in a military career that, you know, won't even really directly pertain to your job. Most, most effective NCOs will eventually either be a recruiter, which is sales, or a drill sergeant, which is being a real teacher. They're going to do one of those two, they call them trails. Some will do both. And there's always some place you can shift to. I'm not saying it's the way to go. I'm just saying it's one of the places, and it's things like that that will work for you as a career without moving all the time. So you've got to find one of kind of those four options. An entrepreneur is probably the best one, but it does not come without risk. And the last thing that's a disadvantage is you won't know when to quit at times when it's the best or the only option. And it's not you won't always not know when to quit. You will know sometimes to quit, but sometimes you won't know when to quit. You'll just like, man, I know we can do this. I know we can do this. I know we can do this. The Thomas Edison thing i didn't fail to make a light bulb I came up with a thousand ways that don 't work I just got to keep going and that might be true or it might not be true and sometimes you can be an annoying person because you're doing it for someone that doesn't want it maybe I mean the the, the most extreme example would be you have a, a person you care about with a terminal illness and you have turned your mind on so much of the ability that I can always have an option that you think you can do what 20 specialists have said they can't do. That would be an extreme example. You keep coming up with something they can try. And they they have gone through the five stages of grief, and they just want to quit. That would be the most extreme example of what I'm talking about. And I'm giving you the extreme example so you can understand the other places that it might pertain to you as a disadvantage. And these disadvantages are not bad. They're things to be aware of so that you can mitigate and control them and know when they're cropping up into your life. The advantages, I think, far outweigh them. Number one, you're going to be a problem solver and a troubleshooter. If you – see, because what's going to happen is when you learn something, the next time you take a new subject, you're going to apply what you learned to that old subject, even if it seems completely unrelated to the new subject. That's why you'll learn it faster. And that's pattern recognition. There was somebody that wrote in when we talked about this before, and they said, you know, the pattern recognition kicks in that if you're learning about something like how the interstate system is built, you see the network. So then when you learn about a computer network, you understand the computer network faster because you understood the network that was the interstate system because they basically work the same way. Information flows in two directions. There's all these points that have to be reached. There's a central branch, et cetera. So now when you want to learn about anatomy and you look at the central nervous system, oh, Oh, it's the same thing. And this is actually really the same because the highway system had a structural thing that was similar to the network, but it was entirely different because cars were moving down this one, mechanical, and pulses, electronic, were moving down this one. But in the, the central nervous system, it's also pulses and electricity. Oh, and a nerve is like a coaxial cable. So you could have this neural problem. It's the same as a dead short in a coax cable. And when that all kind of kicks in, all of a sudden, and this is why you don't know when to quit sometimes, you see the solution so ever-loving fast. And it becomes annoying to people because they're like, well, see, we're going to have to, oh, just do this. And and they don't even understand how you knew what they were going to say, and you often do. That's another disadvantage. You've got to learn to rope that in. But, yeah, you're going to be a problem solver and a troubleshooter. And as far as bouncing around in careers, there is always a place for someone that can solve problems. There is always a place for the person that can troubleshoot. Now, there are certain jobs where it is a detriment. You show up, and my dad used to describe it this way. He said, son, there are jobs. If you get one of them, it's going to work like this. You go and you sit in your seat. You put your pencil on the left. You put your paper on the right. And you keep your mouth shut. And I thought immediately, I don't want that kind of job. I don't want that kind of job, right? But there are always the other kind of jobs. There is always someone that says, if you can fix my problem, I will hire you. You can be a contractor. I will give you a contract for sales, whatever, right? Um, the next thing is it will, I talked about this already, but it's it, the one huge advantage It becomes very difficult for people to bullshit you or take advantage of you. Because when somebody just gives you a number to do something, like, oh, to fix that, it's going to be $4,200. If you don't know anything at all about that world, and that's why you called somebody to fix it, if that number seems out of line, you're going to be very quick to go, well, I know how to figure out whether that number's right or not. It's not just calling someone else to get a second quote. It's research. It's, hey, he said this thing is broken. How much do those things cost? How much labor is involved? And if you... Take the time to develop the high-level knowledge and limited competency without the hard skill of the things that are directly important to you. Like I said, if you're building a business and you have an online component to it, knowing what can and can't be done quickly and easily, then that programmer can't bullshit you. Like, look, dude, I'm using WordPress. I know there's a plug-in that does 90% of that, and I know all I need you to do is give me the 10%. So now let's, let's talk about this as a reality. Well, you need a custom bullshit gone next guy. And again, you have to to fan that out and pattern it into all the other areas in your life. The next is you will be adaptable and you will bring values to other people. People will see you as valuable. They might sometimes look at you a little bit of the know-it-all if you're not careful in how you present yourself, but you will bring value to others. And that's how the economy works. That's the true market, value-to-value exchanges. So you're going to have that. And there will always be something you can do in any situation, and then bringing back what I said about not knowing when to quit 99% of the time. There are times when there is nothing you can do. There, There are times. You know, there are times when, and a lot of times it's not about you. It's about somebody else that doesn't want help, and so there's nothing that can be done. And learning to recognize that 1% maximizes the 99% where something can be done. Because so many people are so quick to chase the 1% and throw in the towel early on the hard part of the 99. Oh, there's nothing I can do. You hear it all the time. Well, they bitch about their, somebody bitches about their income tax. Well, why don't you do something about it? Oh, there's nothing I can do. What do you mean there's nothing you can do? There's a whole section of books in a library about what you can do. There's a thousand websites telling you what you can do. Ninety percent of the tax code is how to get out of it. Ten percent is what you have to do. Eh. What they're really saying is, I don't. I don't. This is not a big enough problem for me. I just want to bitch about it. Don't bother me. But if you're a Renaissance man, you say, Hey, wait a minute. Since now I've developed this skill, that I can't learn a hundred percent about a subject, but. Now I can learn 50% of what's knowable about this thing. In 1% of the time, it takes a person generally to do that. And if I invest a couple of weeks in learning this and then figure out, okay, does this fit into my life in some way? Then I can save tens of thousands of dollars, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars from going to the government over my lifetime that can go to my retirement or to my family, or to my charities, or whatever it is. Or, I'll quickly discern that this doesn't fit. I can't make this work for me, and I can put it on the shelf and say, you know, if things change, maybe I'll revisit that later. So you you, you take that path. And as you start walking that path of knowledge, you really quickly figure out, okay, this is going to work and do what I need, or it's not. And, and this, it's it just changes everything because all of a sudden you go from a person that says what are you going to do to a person that always seems to have some option you, you start asking yourself what are my tools what are the tools that i have here's this problem in my life here's this thing this obstacle so what are the tools that i have that i can use what do i know about this and how can i think what i know about this and how it relates to other things and the tools that I have, and put them together, and do something. Which then leads to, okay, so what What are my shortfalls of surmounting this obstacle? And then you very quickly drill down to, these. this is the thing that I need to master, or learn, or become an expert in, or find somebody to do for me to make this go away. And I'm telling you, I have sat in board meetings with self-important people deliberating for hours how to solve simple problems and the solution is so simple that when they're presented with it, the first thing that they do is resist it then they argue why it cannot possibly work then they convince themselves that it's their idea and then they tell you that you should do it I've seen it over and over again again, pattern recognition is the key to this stuff let me give you one real world example of this type of a meeting. So when I worked with Neil, which is what I was doing when I first started doing the podcast, Neil Franklin, a really amazing British entrepreneur that built a ton of really great companies. One of the companies that, that, that we built together was a company called Syrian. And Syrian did network optimization for cellular carriers. And I don't want to get too deep into it because, you know, again, you learn what you want to learn, and most of you, your eyes will roll over. But basically, what we were able to do is tell them, this is how you can not spend money today and defer the cost till tomorrow, or this is where you need to spend money today because that network's going to fall over tomorrow. This is the best way to look at it. And we had a pending contract with AT and T for four million dollars. And $4 million is not a lot of money to AT&T, but it is to any individual department within AT&T. So this particular department had a budget, and we're getting near the end of the fiscal year, and they had a huge budget for service, but they had a very small budget left for product, and most of it was spoken for. So they didn't have enough mo- They had plenty of money in the budget overall, but they didn't have enough product budget to pay for our software as a product. So sitting there with all of these people trying to figure out what can we do about this because they're afraid if they let the fiscal year close and try to get it out of the next year's budget, that's just going to put it off, and you close the deal while you can. That was the one thing they had right. So I'm sitting there, I'm listening to all this, and finally I said, why don't you just change the description of the product to software services because we support the software anyway. The software, honestly, is not really the product our people and our back end that actually drives the software. Because if you installed the software on a computer, it won't really do anything with access to through ASP to our services and our people that help you. So it really isn't a product, it is a service. And they said, well, we already told them it was a product. I'm like, do the people that want to 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 cut the PO really care? Well, no. Okay, then why? Well, we can't just do that. Well, why not? Is it against the law? Is it immoral? I mean, is there something I'm missing here? That just changing the descriptor of the line item will get the PO cut? And it was like trying to drive not a round peg into a square hole. It was like trying to drive a round wooden peg into a titanium wall. It was so simple that all of these self-important assholes... Couldn't do it. And finally, I said, okay, look, I don't like doing this, but this is what we're doing. Get it done. And it worked. Now, I was in a situation where I could make that call. But I had the authority to say, this is what we're doing. I was serving as the COO of the company. So I could say, okay, we're doing this. And we did it. And it worked. But my God, why fight that? But people will. So that's, that's the good and the bad. You're going to have this ability, and then other people are going to resist the ability because it can't be that simple, and it usually is. Here's the best part of it. What I put in the notes was it gets easier as you go. I I really need to change that. I probably will before I publish this show, too. Everything gets easier as you go. What I meant when I wrote it down, and I when I do these outlines, guys, I don't sit for days. I go talk to the ducks. I come in and bang out that outline, and I, I present and that's an example of it gets easier as you go. So how I started doing the show, but now, man, it's so much easier than it was 10 years ago. And everything gets easier because of the pattern recognition, because of simplifying things, because, and, and so it also gets easier to learn. And this is this is why this is such an amazing thing to be. In general, the older we get, the more difficult it becomes to learn something new. Because we don't want to. We're tired. We work every day. And I don't want to learn a new way to do something. I just don't. I don't have time. That's how people feel. And that's, there is some validity to that. If I have a task that needs to be performed in work every day and there's a slightly better way to do it, um, but it would take me a very long time to, to figure that out or to implement it or it would be cost expensive. Um, Maybe I don't care. But in general, what happens is that legitimate viewpoint permeates into all things where, like, my neighbor who's an author came to me with, like, this 99-point plan for authors to promote themselves online. And he'd say, "I I said, well, you know a lot of stuff. I want to go through with you and explain it to me. So, you know, he'd go to, to step one, and I'd say, okay, so what you need to do is go set this site up here. Set your profile up. Oh, that's too hard. Dude, it's filling out a form and clicking submit. Let's go to the next one. And we went through like 12 of them, and everything was the same. He wanted me to make him feel good about it, but he didn't actually want me to tell him what to do. The damn list told him what to do. (laughs) You know what I did? (laughs) I pawned him off in the cold sauce as a client. (laughs) That's a true story. Um, I think he worked out as an okay client, but he's not ever going to do any of these things because he's not a renaissance man. If you actually take this path, you'll realize anything I actually want or need to learn, I can do, and it gets easier. And everything in your life gets easier, as long as it's something that can be easy. You know, a cancer diagnosis isn't easy, right? Having somebody hit you out of nowhere and cripple you in your car, there's nothing about that that can be easy. So don't don't take that to be an absolute But in general, most things in life that people consider difficult become very easy for you, and that's worth doing. You know, my final thoughts on this are it isn't for everyone. And some people do have a natural predisposition for it. I think being an inquisitive person and having a high IQ is helpful, but not necessarily. And, you know, high IQ is relative. Higher than what? Who says what's high? Who says what's low? I mean, there is a certain level where you've gone down to the level of being you know, borderline retarded at about 75. But most people in America have – the average IQ in America is about 100. I think somebody with 100 IQ can do most of this stuff, maybe not quite the same way. I actually believe – one of the myths, I think, is that IQs don't change, or they only change very, very little. So I think actually this approach can actually dramatically increase a person's IQ especially if you think about the way that IQs are tested most accurately. The most accurate IQ test that science have developed shows you a series of shapes and patterns, and they say which one completes the pattern. That's what they've determined is like the most accurate method of testing IQ. Well, what we just talked about is that and developing that. So I think it can actually bring that IQ up, so I don't think IQ is that much of a hurdle again unless you truly are stupid. My ignorance can be cured stupid as forever, in the words of Ron Wyatt. So, anybody can do this, but it's still not for everybody because some people want to be that specialist. Some people are just really happy being average. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. If everybody did this, it wouldn't be special anymore. It would be average. It really would. So it's okay if this isn't your path. But I, to me, I don't know that I could live another way. I don't know that I could be happy any other way. And I really do believe that it's not whether or not people are or aren't this way. It's a matter of degrees. How much are they like this? I believe that any person that truly has a desire to learn something will pursue the knowledge if they're given the freedom to do so. And I believe that anybody that really needs to learn how to do something will acquire the knowledge to meet the need if it truly is a need. So then the question only becomes, how how much do you see as a need? In other words, some people would only see a need at the point where if I don't do this, I'm going to die. Some people would say the need begins where I'm going to be really uncomfortable. Some people would say the need occurs at the point that I'm actually not going to be happy and some people would say that they actually need to know they're doing everything they can to get as far as they want to in life. That need is a variable and it's, a, it's subjective. And then as far as desire, how passionate are you about how many things? And to me, again, it's the best way to live. It's the best way to live. I think there's a piece of it for everyone. The only question then becomes how big a piece do you want? Hopefully this has been an entertaining show and a little bit different than things we've done up till now, or done recently anyway. I definitely will put it under the tag of the insurrection and under lifestyle design on the tagging system on the blog for you guys. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show and you'd like to support us and the work that we do, I want to remind you you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You shop at tspaz, you help support the show no matter what you eventually buy, And I got something for you today. I'm bringing it around again. It's a tape measure. Tape measures are important, man. If you want to be a Renaissance man, you've got to be able to measure stuff, right? Um, I I recommend a a brand called Comelon, K-O-M-E-L-O-N, and their self-lock tape measure. This is one of those things, like the Renaissance man must have invented this that said, I don't care what everybody has done up till now, it's stupid, we should do it the other way. And when you see it, you go, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So your standard tape measure, you pull a tape measure out, and if you want it to stay out, you push a lock down, and it locks. And then when you want to come in, you unlock it. So have you ever pushed a tape measure out and just wanted it to immediately come back in? Have you ever wanted to not lock it? I mean, even if you don't engage the lock, you know, if you're measuring something short, you take your index finger and kind of stop it with your index finger. I mean, unless you're a little kid playing with your granddad's and you're going to get your ass whipped because you break it, right? Don't you always want it to stay out? So what Coleman did is they said, why don't we make it so it stays out by default? So you pull it out and it's automatically locked and pushing the button retracts it. Gee, that's so smart. Because I have never thought, gee, I wish this thing would come back faster, right? In fact, that's the number one way, jerking it too hard and letting it come back too fast is how you break tape measures. The other thing is I've had really expensive tape measures break. So I've found that buying an expensive tape measure doesn't mean it won't break. And then I think I have little gnomes that live in my house that steal shit from me. I generally don't believe in the supernatural, but I have three things that disappear regularly. Sharpie markers, fingernail clippers, and tape measures. And I mean like... I have not. I'm working at a workbench. Maybe I have a beer. The most I've done, other than my work, is pick the beer up and sipped on it and thought about what I was doing. I have not walked away from the bench. The tape measure is gone. Well, you can get two of these, twelve um, footers. You can get two for about fifteen bucks or seven fifty a piece. So when the gnome steals one. You're not that upset about it. You can get a 25-footer for 10 bucks, So they're inexpensive, and I have yet to actually break one. The gnomes have gotten a few, but I don't feel that bad because I'm not completely out of my tape measure budget yet for the year. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. And they're kind of bright green, so if the gnome drops it somewhere, it's easier to find it. What, you don't have, you don't have gnomes that steal your shit at home? You're lucky if you don't, man. Anyway, in all seriousness, they come in uh, 12 foot, 16, and 25 foot. And here's kind of my, you know, my pattern recognition, Renaissance man thing with this. I think twelve footers are the best for everyday carry around your little projects and stuff like that, because they're small, they fit in a pocket clip on a belt, they're not bulky. And anything that you know you need to do kind of off the fly, the little twelve footer works for. The sixteen and the twenty five cost almost the same, and they're almost the same bulk. So I've never had a tape measure in my hand and thought, gee, I wish this I wish this thing was freaking you know nine feet shorter. Never in my life have I thought that. So, I or fourteen foot short, whatever. I, I've never really felt that I wish the tape measure was shorter. And since they're about the same size, what I did is I bought a, a couple twin packs, stuck them in some drawers. So when the gnomes steal one, I can go get another one. I picked up two twenty-five footers because sooner or later the gnomes are gonna get one. Put one in my toolbox, one in a drawer. And that way, when I need to measure something beyond that 12-footer, I go get my larger one, hide it from the gnomes, and put it back right away. Anyway, check these tape measures out. They're pretty cool. I do think they are affordable, quality-made, and they operate in a way that actually makes sense. With that, we've wrapped up the show, and it is time for Song of the Day. Song of the Day is Jeremy by Pearl Jam. This is a song, I guarantee you, even if you don't know you've heard it before, Unless you've lived under a rock for a while, you've, you've probably heard it before. Uh, this song is about a kid in Richardson, Texas, where I worked a lot of my life and not far from here. Um, but I believe it was 1993, took his own life in school. He had a lot of problems, and one day he walked out of the classroom, went and got a gun, walked back in the classroom, told the teacher, this is what I really want to get, miss, put the gun in his mouth, blew his head off right at the front of the classroom in front of his friends. And this is a subject we've talked about a lot on the air, that there is something wrong in our education system. There is something wrong with the way children treat each other today and the way they're able to treat each other. And this is from quite a while ago, when I don't believe the problem was anywhere near as bad as it is today. And I think this is a problem that's reared its head in teen suicide, and it's also reared its head in school shootings. My wife and I were just talking about this recently. And uh, we were talking about how they inflate these numbers of school shootings to include things that are not school shootings. And one of the studies I looked at where they were talking about, you know, there's a shooting every two days or something like that. One of the things they called a school shooting was a man in his 20s pulled his car into the parking lot of the high school that he went to, sat there for a while, pulled out a gun and shot himself in the head. Killed himself in his car in his school parking lot. Um, That's not a school shooting. That's not what people mean when they say school shooting. That is the media inflating the number. But it sure puts its finger on the pulse of the problem. Do you really think the reason that guy killed himself had nothing to do with how he was treated at that school? Do you think he just ran like, you know, I'm going to kill myself today. I'm going to build the kill myself a wheel spinning around and there's 20 places I could go, ah, school parking lot, good as any? Or do you think there was a deep-seated thing that anchored him back to the way he was treated that made him go there to try to send a final message? And a lot of these things like this, these suicides, and a lot of these school shootings are suicides in the long run. Even sometimes when they get the shooter alive, the initial plan was I'm going to die today. And I don't have the courage to take my own life, so I'll go take others so that someone will take mine and then in the end, they crumbled and didn't even go through on that. They took the other lives, but they didn't want to die in the end. The will to live is strong, even among people that are incredibly damaged, which tells you how damaged people must be when they finally make this decision to take their own life and It's one of the things that i i you know I say everything gets easier, and there's always an option. But sometimes there isn't an option. It's one of those worlds where there's actually lots of options that we could do to reduce this problem. But the system itself is set up to prevent those options from being implemented in most situations. But I also said that one of the problems that somebody with a uh, with kind of this uh, mentality that we talked about today, of being a polymath, or renaissance man, they don't know when to quit. Well, I'm going to tell you what, this isn't one of those times. There's something here and there that we can all do in little bits and pieces that will help make this better. And it's one of those situations where you don't have to save everybody. If your actions, directly or indirectly, through a chain of events, save one, it's enough that it matters. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't.